This episode is sponsored by Voice123, the first online marketplace for voice actors with over 30,000 projects of all genres flowing through annually. It's a super useful tool for anyone who wants to take their storytelling to the next level. Got a creative project you'd like to bring to life? Download our free step-by-step guide at voice123.co slash in the envelope to successfully find the right voice for any of your projects. It can come from anyone. You just have to find it. Links are in the description below or on our website as well. Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the one-stop shop for actors and creators both above and below the line. I am your host, Vinny Mancuso, Backstage Senior Editor and Professional Entertainment Obsessive. I'll be your guide through every corner of the creative industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. Here you'll find intimate, in-depth talks with today's most award-worthy names in film, television, and theater. Along the way, we'll get advice on living your best creative life, relatable stories of the highest highs and lowest lows, and maybe, just maybe, a rare peak in the envelope. filled with self-doubt because you're not a mathematician. There's no equation at the end of your work that you're going to be able to say, oh, great, it equaled nine. You know, you're going to have to come up with your own equation and say, hey, you know, uh, purple plus blue plus John Malkovich plus John Bryan equals nine for me. And uh, now I feel satisfied. Welcome to In the Envelope, the actor's podcast. I am your host, Backstage Senior Editor, Vinny Mancuso, and joining us today is the co-creator of the longest-running live-action sitcom of all time, the voice of Luigi in the box office hit, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and the centerpiece of maybe more gifs than any other man on Earth, the great Charlie Day. Now, this has been a very busy few years for Charlie. Um, His whole career has been busy, but this especially. uh, He's currently shooting the 16th season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, As I mentioned in the show, he co-created, showruns, writes, and stars in. Also, as I mentioned, he lent his voice to the Super Mario Bros. movie, as well as starred in the rom-com I Want You Back. But in between all of this, somehow, Charlie has also been hard at work at his directorial debut, the feature film Fool's Paradise. The behind the scenes story of how this movie came to be is just basically a very creative person, Charlie Day, putting challenge after challenge in front of himself and rising to the occasion. Um, Charlie wrote this script, he's directing for the very first time, and he also stars in a completely mute role, uh, a character known as Latte Pronto, uh, who without a word bumbles his way up to Hollywood fame. Uh, It's just this really really delightful throwback movie, um, the kind of comedy you, you don't really see at a studio level anymore. Um, something like, uh, as Charlie puts it here again and again, his main inspiration films like uh, Hal Ashby's Being There. Charlie gets into all the many ups and downs of getting a movie like that made uh, and doing it while also delivering two seasons of television for FX uh, and then some. And it's really just an incredible, incredible peak Behind the curtain for anyone listening who maybe wants to just take their career into their own hands and create your own work, Charlie Day's story is the one to listen to. Let's get right into it. Here is Charlie Day. Charlie Day. 
Charlie, how's it hey, going? Man. Good, good. Um, you noticed you, you mentioned you're in New York City. I am. I am. Uh, what brings you to New York City? Uh, well, besides, I mean, you know. I'm here doing a bunch of press for uh, Fool's Paradise and uh, doing as many uh, of the New York press outlets as I can. Yeah, I'm leaving tomorrow morning and then I'll be back in the beginning of May, uh, just before the movie comes out, to, to do some more, you know, to talk to Whoopi Goldberg or whoever else will have me. <laughs> well, we're very happy to hear, have you today. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, but I do want to mention because, you know, I, I know that you have history in New York. Um, you know, when you years long, long, long time ago, you know, you were in New York with people you had met at the Williamstown Theater Company, people that, you know, sort of knew making sketches, short films, uh, stuff like that, just to put your creative energy somewhere. And I'd, I'd love for you to, to tell me a little bit about that time. You know, what was the 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 drive to, to sort of make things for yourself in uh, New York City? You know, you hit the nail on the head when you said to find somewhere to put your creative energy. And it's not just my creative energy, it's like all my energy. But, uh, and the funny thing is, I find that I'm still doing it. In fact, you know, several of those people from those movies are are in my movie. But um, mm-hmm. that was a really great time for me. In fact, I was this morning, I was doing the, the Willie Geist talk show and we were walking around. We walked by my old apartment at 92 Orchard Street and there was some young man going in the building and he let us in. And we went up to the floor where my apartment was with uh, Jimmy Simpson. Um, although he lived in the apartment next to it, so I didn't get into the actual building. But that was a really great time. I was in my early 20s and I had been at the Williamstown Theater Festival and I moved to New York and I no longer had a New York day job. I mean, my first couple of years I was waiting tables and stuff, but now I was making enough money from the occasional commercial or uh, the occasional, you know, episodic part like uh, on the show Third Watch or Law and Order or what have you, and doing some voiceovers for the independent film channel that I could pay my rent as a performer. So in my downtime, uh, Jimmy and I would just make funny home movies. Um, And it was one part to entertain ourselves. It was one part because something inside us was driving us to do it. And there was an aspect of it too that was educational where we would learn somewhat what to do with the camera, but more specifically as actors, as young aspiring actors, we would learn what we sort of looked and sounded like when the camera was right up in our face or on the other side of the room. And coming from starting in theater and trying to figure out that transition, you know, we were we were learning how big you could be or how small you could be and get away with it. And we were playing with the extremes in both direction, right? Which is, <clears throat> well, how, let's do this sketch where we're seeing where we're doing this drug deal gone wrong or what have you, how big can we go? How, how broad? And you still buy it. Okay. I'm doing this other scene where you're interviewing me for a job position. How small can I go? How, how little can I, how small of a moment can the audience sort of pick up on? And it was, I didn't realize this is what we were doing, but we were sort of training ourselves as performers. And this was a, a precursor which I didn't realize either, to what became a career in making my own material. 
never did I sort of expect that's what I was going to do, but there must have been a piece of me that really loved and enjoyed doing it. I suppose I had some role models that had worked in that way of filmmakers who sort of made movies and starred in them, whether it was Christopher Guest or Albert Brooks or Woody Allen. But I think that was just the, the sort of the planting the seed of how to do it. It's a bummer. I try not to get too doom and gloom about it, but it almost feels like that's a uh, a New York and a, a a path that just doesn't kind of exist anymore. You know, you can't just move to New York and sort of figure it out because you can't you can't <laughs> i don't know if you, you you have that sense because you know as you you come back to new york it, it does it feel different does it do all the years in between sort of you know painted in a different light for you well i don't really know because i don't live here anymore you know if you can or you can't sort of go and have a new york existence as a young person with no money in your pocket but um it, it wasn't easy then either <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. uh but you know Orchard Street didn't have a lot going on when I was down there. Um, there was, you know, nothing really. Uh, and yeah, things are fancier now. I imagine there are still are corners of this city where the young men and women or people are doing uh, the exact same thing. You know, it may just be further out in Brooklyn now, but, you know, someone's probably got an apartment somewhere that they're, uh, you know, paying half the price for. In fact, Jimmy had a place before he was living with me above the Gray's Papaya on uh, uh, which one? The one like on like 10th Street or something. I don't know. It's probably not there anymore, actually. But um, do they still have Gray, Gray's Papaya in the city, the hot dog they place? They do. They do. Yeah. Yeah. So he had one on the on the west side there, the lower west side. And it, he, it was an illegal apartment where uh, – I think the superintendent of the building was renting it out to Jimmy, even though uh, the superintendent didn't have any rights to do that. And <laughs> and uh, Jimmy had to move out in the middle of the night at at one point because uh, you know the the gig was up. <laughs> uh, but you know, in that very hot dog smelling apartment, you know, we shot a uh, whole thing where he was uh, I was Simon and he was Garfunkel. <laughs> And, you know, we were just starting to make these things. But I, I don't know if those kind of apartments still exist in the city. It's, I imagine they do somewhere, but hard to know. Well, if they do, we will not out them or, or mention yeah. them in this podcast. Exactly. Um, so, you know, as you out nowadays, you know, you're making your directorial debut, your feature directorial debut on uh, Fool's Paradise. Uh, when you think back to, you know, getting that creative energy out all those years ago, what's you know, a muscle that you were you were most flexing then that 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 really did carry over the decades into make into directing this uh, this feature. Well, certainly it was acting, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that was always the prime motivation, and probably even was with this movie, which is how can I create a vehicle for myself to try some different types of acting? And then I think it was it's always sunny in Philadelphia that gave me the confidence to say, okay, well, I, I don't always have to be making something just for something to act in. I can make something for the thing itself to be something unique and worthy of people's time. But um, it's sort of, it, it's weird how it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, just, well, where, what are the people doing in the scene and where, where should the camera go? And how can we make this more interesting? Or what is, I think the thing that I didn't really realize starting like that was, sort of the bigger questions of like, well, what is the scene about on a deeper level? And, they, you know, those things 
maybe I thought about after the fact, but the fundamentals of it are still the same, which is, okay, a character's knocking on the door. All right, we have a spy hole of people, whatever those are called, in our apartment door. Can we get this little digital camera up to there? Can we actually shoot a shot through it? Oh, it turns out we can. All right, well, that's that's aesthetically interesting. Let's try that, you know, or let's try another shot from you know, down at our feet. Oh, that one doesn't really work or make sense for the project. So the dynamics of what it is to make something are always the same, which is let's get some performers and let's get a camera and let's film a performance and then let's cut it together. Just the techniques have gotten better and the tools have gotten better and the people that I'm collaborating with have gotten uh, better and better and better. Absolutely. So, you know, this, this, I believe, you know, officially started in 2018, but I'm, I'm sure that it, it, it started a bit before that. So what was, you, you mentioned, you know, you had reasonings for doing this, you had reasonings for, you know, doing things on Always Sunny too, but what was the push, you know, the, the, the thing that got you to, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to direct a, a feature. Well, I had a few separate things I, I was sort of wanting to do. Um, and around 2014, I started taking notes on, on this movie that I was calling El Tonto at the time, which I thought was just my simple initial pitch was, can I do being there, but can I set it in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. Can I take that sort of Mr. Magoo type structure of everybody watching this person bumble through a a story without any intention? So initially, I think that was just my motivation. I was sort of collecting notes on it. In terms of directing it, at the time, it felt like I could make it kind of small and it wouldn't be very hard to do so it might be easy to do it just kept blossoming into a bigger and bigger project and a more ambitious idea you know and then eventually it got to a point where I thought okay well now it can't be being there anymore I have to mash it together with Broadway Danny Rose or Death of a Salesman or something but the initial instinct was same as any instinct usually which is well what might be fun to to put together and what might be fun for people to see. In terms of directing, I think I always wanted to direct. I mean, in a sense, that itch was scratched with show running It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with Robin Glenn, where, you know, you you pick the props and often the locations and you cast the cast and you edit the final edit with the editor and um, we write the scripts and it's pretty much the same job except we have these wonderful directors who come on it's always sunny in philadelphia and they add to those things that we've already sort of laid out and then oftentimes you know a a lot of them are very collaborative and they would be open to us saying hey can we try this with the camera or that and so we got to learn from them Um, and sometimes we had people come in that we weren't so happy with and we sort of had to figure out okay how can we get this to be what we wanted it to be so there was the sort of feeling as though I was already kind of doing that. I'd made a few big comedic movies uh, before this that were uh, fun to be a part of, but I didn't have the same control over them that I might have with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And that's not a uh, a slight on the movies. I love the movies. Um, that's just was an just interesting observation for me doing a few of them where I thought, oh, Boy, it'd be nice to maybe go one direction or another with them and saying, okay, well, I don't, I don't mind showing up and doing that for someone else's script, but I don't think I would want to do that for something that I wrote from beginning to end, like have someone else have all the final say. 
So that was another motivation for directing the movie, which is that I wrote it. I feel as though I can't trust someone else to totally make it what I hope it could be. And if I did give it to someone else and they took it in a direction that I didn't want it to be, I, it would be disheartening. So, but I always, you know, I always liked, like I said, you know, Christopher Guest or whatever, where you, you felt as though his voice was in all the characters in a way, mm -hmm. you know, um, a Woody Allen movie, you know, um, who, you know, any one sort of film that was comedic, that was written by the main performer. I always enjoy films like that. I see. I mean, I, I don't know how much of this is purposeful, how much of it is a direct, you know, but I, I see a lot of Charlie Chaplin in both the main character and the sort of silent comedy quality of the film. I'm wondering um, if any of that was intentional or if it's just something that sort of comes through because of the nature of the character. I think it actually becomes comes through because of the nature of the character, because I didn't really intend to do a Charlie Chaplin thing. I think when Liz Wolf and I landed on the character wearing a hat, which was just a little bit of a wink and a nod to, to being there, it started to feel more Charlie Chaplin. And then at one point I worked in the bit, which is actually from a Jacques Tati movie. It's a French mime, a very funny performer where I sort of dropped the, <laughs> I, it's really funny. I have. I was like, my next thing is, hey, there's a moment in the film with the water jug that reminded me. That, that is the specific moment that I wanted to call out that I just love so much and just felt like something I hadn't seen in a movie in a long time. It was. It's because it's specifically from a Jacques Tati movie where it's, it's uh, called the kitchen, and he it's the same jug, and he does this this bit, and uh, I think it was. It might have been Tim Roach uh, who did my first edit of the movie before I got to work with Leslie Jones who, while I was filming and he was on set, said to me, you know, we really should find the time to get the one sort of Charlie Chaplin-esque moment in because you are playing the silent character. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it because I did sort of like the idea that this character was, in a sense, not interesting in and of itself, <laughs> which, of course, is not really a great thing to do. You know, later I sometimes would kick myself in the editing room, which was like, well, why didn't I do... Mr. Bean type things in, in every single scene, but that really wasn't the type of movie I was trying to make. You know, I wanted to make a movie where everyone was was putting personality and intention on the character as they saw or needed it. Um, but the, the character himself had very little to offer, and that's what was funny about it. But yeah, so I think that one sort of clowning moment really kind of cements in a Charlie Chaplin feel. And anytime you have a main character who's not talking and is reacting, you know, you'll, you'll go to the most iconic silent character of all, which is Charlie Chaplin. Um, if there's any intent in it, it's that I always wanted to play a silent character and see if I could get some humor from the silent performance. So that was, I certainly was influenced by Charlie Chaplin as a performer without a doubt. I was going to ask you about, you know, the, of course, the challenges of playing a silent character, but what, you know, what you found was natural about playing a silent character because of, you know, the films you've been in, the, the, the things you have experience with. And what was sort of something that was, you know, emotion or some or a theme or something that was particularly hard to get across without words? You know, you take that away. What was hard to put in the place? Well, you think of any performance, you're only talking half the time or a third of the time, you know, otherwise you'd just be doing a 
two-hour monologue, which uh, no one wants to watch. So, you know, half of any performance is the listening and reacting. I just simply eliminated the first half where I do the talking. But uh, I think there were there were challenges to it. I had reached out to Bill uh, Irwin, who's a famous uh, man who does clowning, to get a little advice from him before I shot the movie, only to realize that I actually didn't want to do too much clowning within the movie. And that my sole job was to be listening and reacting. And that was the thing that I found the most challenging because I was also directing the movie. So I would have to be paying attention to what the other performances were doing just to make sure they were working from a dialogue standpoint to a tonal standpoint. So I would have to pay attention to the performances as a director and not always and I would find myself not always paying to the attention to the performances as a sort of naive fool, which is what the character was supposed to be. And I could tell the difference in the editing room when I was in it as the character and when I was in it as the director. And I would kick myself because I'd be like, oh, that's a great take from Ken. And I am completely not looking at him the way Latte Pronto should be looking at him. I was looking at him the way Charlie Day, the director, is looking at him to make sure I'm getting certain moments. So that that was, in fact, really challenging um, and caught me by surprise. I think it would have been less challenging if I wasn't all, already directing and I could solely focus on that, but sort of splitting my focus. And the way that I wound up having to do that was to just trust that I could go back and look at a take and make sure it was there and be listening as the character and turn my actor hat off, take my director hat off between action and cut and then put it back on. But that was the trickiest balance of all for me personally. It almost sounds like, and again, a lot of this, you know, it, it doesn't sound like you were doing any this purposely, but it feels like a lot of, of this, this film was just adding challenges for yourself. You know, you, it's a film that you wrote, you're directing for the first time. Uh, you're playing a, a mute character and you also have a, a small role as a, as a second character. Uh, I'm curious how much of your creative life has been, you know, sort of learning by just, putting obstacles in your way or, or, or sort of lumping yes. challenges. Together. Uh, I think I naively didn't, uh, didn't really understand how challenging it would be when I set out to do it, how big a swing it was as a, as a story, you know, to land it, which is what sort of forced me into the reshoots. But if there's anything I'm proud of, it's for, it's for taking the swings and, and, mm -hmm. and taking the leaps, you know, but anyone's career uh, that is at all successful is a series of them taking leaps and risks and, and trying things. Um, so my intent was not to make things difficult for myself. My intent was to make things and making anything comes with a series of challenges. So I think I have instincts and I, I, the instincts are the movie I want to see. And then when I set out to make the movie I wanted to see, it's only then that the challenges of how to actually do that occur to me. So yeah, I think I just sort of put myself in these situations and then say, okay, it's like a, it's like a Houdini trick or like, how do I make it out of here alive? <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that. I mean, you know, a lot of people wonder about, you know, just, just doing the thing as opposed to thinking about doing the thing. And it, it sounds like, you know, for your whole career, uh, it's just kind of been a series of, of you deciding to, to do the thing. And I'm, I'm wondering, because, you know, a, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, we are backstage or people who are, you know, they want to learn how to do the thing. And I'm, I'm curious how important it's been to you to that you have made these decisions to sort of not wait or, you know, try and get something done. Or, like I said, 
put challenges in front of yourself to 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 overcome. How how important has that been to you? I mean, if if we're switching into advice mode, it is the only way to to do it. Right, is to leap headfirst into it and to start doing it. You know, if you're Paul Thomas Anderson, you're making your first film at twenty something years old with a budget, mm-hmm. and a cast, and a crew, so that by the time you're in your fifties, you have a real body of work. Um, you know, had I known I w- was wanting to do this, I might have done it earlier. I think it dawned on me over the course of doing the show how much I liked just making and putting things together. Um, and I think as a younger man, I was just the motivation was solely acting. But if, if there's advice to be given, it's that you just have to jump in and start doing it. Now, let's use the example of a of a painter. Now, if you're a painter and and you you want to paint uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night. You know that's he's he's your role model, and you say I, I want to paint like like Van Gogh. Well, you can't become a painter and start to paint paintings like Van Gogh or like the painter that you will eventually become until you start putting paint on the canvas. So you know you you have to be willing to make that leap. And you have to be willing to have people not like your paintings and you have to be willing to get your hands dirty and get in there and, and start working to make something. So, you know, my career has been a series of putting myself into a situation and hoping that I succeed in it, but so has everybody's career. You know, um, it, it may seem a little more specific because I do so much writing of what I'm putting myself in. But uh, there are, you know, people who don't write, who like just act, who challenge themselves in ways, take on roles or, or do performances and, you know, do them in some person's student film and do them in, on some play that lead to other performances. Or, you know, there are directors or writers. Everybody is just taking leaps and hoping that they, they land safely. And no one's actually landing safely, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone is making content that somebody absolutely hates i mean every everybody everybody there's no safety net you just have to to do it and it's hard it's it's hard to to know that you know you're gonna screw it up or you're gonna give a bad performance or you're not gonna make something good but you can't make something good without trying to make something at all it's interesting you mentioned you're everybody's making something that other people hate i think the thing that a lot of people we talk to have a hard time getting over is you're you're occasionally making things that feel to you like something that you don't like. You know, it's 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 that it's throwing stuff at the wall, and occasionally you're making something that you're not ready for that ambition yet. It's just it's getting it done that is, uh, I think, beneficial. I mean, if it's helpful to hear every single episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that has ever existed, from the time we finished it, I had a sort of sinking feeling in my gut of damn it, this wasn't as good as it could have been. Every single one. It's only later in my life that I've got to kind of go back and revisit them and been like, hey, you know what? That wasn't half bad at all. I see why people like it. It was a ton of fun. I mean, it's not to say you have to hate your work, but uh, you're going to be filled with self-doubt because because you're not a mathematician. There's no equation at the end of your your work that you're going to be able to say, oh, great, it equaled nine. I knew it. There it is. There's all the evidence. Um, 
you know, you're going to have to come up with your own equation and say, hey, you know, uh, purple plus blue plus John Malkovich plus uh, John Bryan equals nine for me. And uh, now I feel satisfied. So, yeah, you're, it's just a series of risks you have to take. But that's, that's why you do it, right? You just, you just do it to do it. Now, just a few days after our conversation with Charlie, the Super Mario Brothers movie hit big at the box office, proving the right voices make all the difference. If you're working on any creative projects, consider elevating it with the power of voice. Voice123 recently created a free step-by-step -step guide to successfully finding the right voice for your projects. Grab your copy at voice123.co slash in the envelope. Links in the description below or on our website as well. It's wonderful that you mentioned the sort of, you know, everybody has to kind of come up with their philosophy, their way to do it. Because um, in a lot of ways, Fool's Paradise is a, is a movie, you know, about acting. It's about a lot of things, but it's about acting. It's about the many ways people can be someone else and the many ways that uh, people, you know, there's the method approach, technical approach, whatever approach you, you you take to creating some other person. This movie is sort of taking a look at that. I'm curious if you have a sort of philosophy towards acting and if if this movie sort of contains it for you. You know, it, it's it's certainly a movie about identity, mm -hmm. right? Um, what what it is to be uh, a person and what we uh, uh, assign value to and you know set within a an industry in which identity is uh, is an illusion right where you're you know you're often playing a version of a real person you're not a real person you're playing a version of a real person and where celebrity gets mixed in with that which is that you create an identity where you can become a latte pronto where people will just accept that we're going to call you uh, the rock uh, and it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, but you know, it is. We are all just saying, okay, this per, this man is an inanimate object. And um, I think acting as performance, right? Which is, um, I think, it's just commitment. It's commitment to the the process, to the work itself, because uh, the result is sort of secondary. But no, I don't think I wrap that into a coherent answer. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a kind of overarching question to to ask i guess you know more specifically like i i've seen you say you know this was this was in an interview you did for i want you back where you know you, you sort of just said you have confidence that you can play another person you know i think it was in the context of you know do you think you could play in in every man or do you think you were you know did you have trouble doing romantic comedy or anything like that and, you know you're sort of you know acting is just i think i could become another person you know in the in the in the in that context so i'm, I'm just curious how that applies to Every project you do, where do you start? You start by realizing that you're never going to become another person. Mm -hmm. So you start with the person that you are. Uh, this is where, if, if we want to get into acting philosophy, I, I start with me. And um, what aspects of my existence can I bring to this character? So it's more emotional for me, usually. Where do my emotions lie and how do they relate to the emotions of this character? versus uh, what are my affectations or things. I think that is the next sort of level of how to do it. So I'm always trying to get down to what is a true emotion that I have in my life that relates to the emotion that this character is having so that when I am feeling the emotion as the character, I'm feeling it the way I feel my emotions in, in real life. I'm not 
consciously sort of actively doing that, like writing a list of emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost, this might just be from experience. So maybe shooting enough home videos with my friends or, or doing plays or uh, movies or whatever it is. But I, in a sense, when I feel like I'm doing it well, I go into like a trance like state of what I'm saying something as a character, I am fully believing it for the, you know, three to five seconds between action and cut, whatever it is. I am fully in it. Sometimes you can't be and you are out of it for a second and you're hearing yourself saying the lines and you're aware of it. But I'm trying to always sort of trick myself into just being in that place of losing myself. And that's, I think it, again, to go back to it, it's an emotional thing, right? Which is that, all right, what are, what is the emotion of my character in this moment? Okay, he's enraged. Well, I've have felt enraged, or he's uh, terrified. I've felt terrified, you know, or or he's heartbroken. I've felt heartbroken. So, just trusting that you have the ability to let go and live within the emotions of your character, just the way you've lived the emotions of your life, and that the two will sort of collide in a way that you can become thoughtless about it. But that being said, I think it it pays to do your work before you come in. A great advantage I have would say it's always sunny in Philadelphia is the amount of time that I have spent writing uh, an episode. I've done a lot of that actor work, right? So I'm like, uh, what does Charlie Kelly want in this scene? I don't have to sort of break it down to figure it out. I, I have to know it in order to write the scene. Uh, it's much more difficult actually when I do a movie like I Want You Back or something where I have to say, okay, I didn't write the script. Uh, let me get to the heart of what the character wants. Um, I don't feel as though this movie specifically has much to say about acting and the craft of acting more than it does about the sort of misguided importance we give celebrity or the idea of it. I, I think it's good to give importance to art and the, whatever the craft and your, your approach to craft. I know I make fun of method acting a little bit in, in it, but I actually in real life don't have any problem with method acting and, you know, greatly enjoy and love and admire people like Daniel Day-Lewis. That's not to say I can't also think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's it's almost feels like, yeah, this is this is its own separate thing. But a lot of what we ascribe to, you know, celebrity and celebrity personalities is its own little bubble of acting. You know, it, it's just sort of it's it's that idea of 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 again becoming someone someone else but you're never actually fully becoming someone else which is which is how you put it well no i mean uh, yeah you are for a minute losing yourself and thinking that you're this person and you might be as happy or sad as that character in the moment but no you're never actually uh, on a space station on the moon or <laughs> you know i sometimes think like with method acting right if if you're talking to daniel day lewis he's playing Abraham Lincoln, how do I explain the film camera to him? <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Lincoln, I need to point this cannon at you. It's perfectly safe, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, all, uh, everybody has their process, for sure. Yeah. The, really, the thing that, that works and that, that matters is that you're getting to some kind of truth. Mm -hmm. I know it's sort of a cliche statement, but it's true. Even with the making of the film, from my first pass, which was a little heightened, to my second pass where I did my reshoot, I just had to keep finding more truth. And I was finding it through Ken Jong, 
and sort of pushing him from an acting standpoint to being like, can you give me something really emotional and really real and really true so that the comedy will land because the audience is seeing something more alive because of how mm -hmm. true, like, uh, truthful it is. I know you've talked about it before. You talked, you mentioned it a bit here, but can, can you tell me a little bit about the the genesis of the the reshoots and the rewrite and you know what sort of what you were looking specifically that that was that was not there in that sort of uh, first pass? Mainly, it was just a script issue, feeling as though you know, like being there uh, or the jerk or uh, even Forrest Gump to an extent. Mm -hmm. I, I had this movie where. You know, we're following this buffoonish character, but I had a story in East LA and I had the character, my character sort of wanting something from that storyline and realizing that it didn't work for my character to sort of half want something. So I, I wasn't marrying the two storylines well. And also then just being able to sort of pinpoint a performance and a performer with Ken Jong and saying, okay, there's something to this, which is much more of the heart of the story. And so can I take this sort of being there model? Can I mash it together with the Broadway Danny Rose thing where you have sort of a, a sad sack? He's a publicist, but he wants to be anything, you know, a manager, a right-hand man. He just wants to be, he keeps referring to himself as I'm going to be a big star one day. He so, which is to sort of say, you know, his inner monologue is speaking out loud, but uh, he wants so badly to be, part of the Hollywood machine. And then can I pair that with a character who wants nothing at all? And it wasn't until I had that narrative engine that I felt as though I had a movie that in my mind really worked. I, again, work is a theoretical thing, but I, I needed that engine of Ken in the story to land the emotional truth of the film and to sort of land the messaging of the story in a more significant way than what I had there before. And um, I got there through a series of very long breaks, pandemic, uh, having to go shoot a romantic comedy, having to deliver a season, two seasons of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which bought me time. And then I got there through reaching out to people like Guillermo del Toro, who gave me wonderful advice and encouraged me to make the changes. And then I got there with the willingness of an incredible cast uh, that was willing to to come back to work and and to reshoot a, a chunk of the movie, uh, which honestly all movies should get a chance to do that. Some people do. Some people really schedule it well where they've written the movie. Mm -hmm. They've scheduled a window for reshoots. Um, some people are Pixar where they, they have the luxury of seeing the movie and then redoing the movie. Some people are Stanley Kubrick where they – <laughs> have the world's <laughs> years, uh, and years and years and years and years and years to make a movie because they can and they don't let the cast go and then i had my own little method of i would make it and then i'd put it down and then i would pick up a scene and then i would put it down and then i did a huge rewrite and then i begged everyone to come back and then they did love that well the end result really is it's it's really wonderful it, it really does feel like a, a, a the type of sort of comedy the type of movie i haven't seen in a long time you know it's just it's just it seems to be filling some sort of space that, that I haven't seen a movie fill in a long time. Generally. That's good you say. I mean, that certainly was a goal of mine, which is to say there's a type of movie I love and there's a type of movie I wish that I could be in. And I, and there's a studio that system that doesn't make those movies or isn't motivated to make those movies. And maybe it's understandable why, but I still think there's an audience 
out there for a more singular comedy that doesn't sort of feel like it's made by a committee at all because uh committed is uh, thinking is like the death of a comedy for sure well as we sort of wrap up here i do want to ask you real quick a few things about always sunny which is you know i believe Please. you're working on season 16 which is as people know is record breaking uh i'm curious just over the course of your career as you've done always sunny bounce to other things what it has meant to you to have this thing that just there you know to to have to have your achievement exist throughout the rest of of, of whatever you were working on it's been everything for me um you know it's it's been a like an educational toolbox and and how to make something where you know we get to if we want to do a film noir episode we can and if we want to do uh you know i mean heck if we said this next season's all in outer space we'd be allowed to do that thanks to the uh, great partners there at fx um it's been a way to have a career and be a father so uh when I had my son uh, now 11 years ago, I had a day job that I could uh, do from home. And there's uh, social relevancy to doing it, which is that the, there's still a fan base out there that loves it. And there's, it's nice to kind of go back and sort of re-up with them every year. Um, but then the security of being able to be a, a father and, and not be a man who i'm in a hotel room now but i'm going back home tomorrow hmm. <laughs> not being a man who's like constantly in a hotel room somewhere and then um there's the part of me that doesn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth which is to say if a studio is going to give me an opportunity to make a season of television and going to give me complete and total creative freedom to do that with two of my greatest friends in the world i'd be stupid not to hmm. um and, you know, when you don't like a Sunny episode, it's entirely my fault and Rob's fault and Glenn's fault. But <laughs> but uh, it's no one else's fault. And, uh, you know, those are the risks that are nice to, to take. It's a huge opportunity to get to, to do it. And I'm sure, you know, you've been asked many times over the years, you know, people want to know what you think the, the secret to the longevity is, you know, why it's why it has a longevity it is. So I'm not going to ask you that directly but i didn't I, I did see you see something or see you say something relatively recently that i thought was really just a great way of putting it when you're talking about the creative process on always sunny where you just said you know the right idea just draws you to it so i'd love for you to sort of elaborate on that and what that has meant over the years well there's a couple well first of all i think the longevity there's so many reasons for that but one which occurred to me this season is the fact that uh, FX has remained the same uh, studio from an executive standpoint. And oftentimes these studios, the president leaves and goes and gets another job or is fired and someone comes in and they clean house and they say, you know, well, I'm not keeping that old. It's always Sunday and Philadelphia show around. And so we've been working with the same team from the top of the studio executive ranks to uh, a lot of the people who work on the show. So that's pretty just lucky in and of itself. Uh, from from a creative standpoint, I think there's lots of reasons why. But to answer your question about why the right idea always wins, well, that's sort of the joy of making it, which is every year when we're given an opportunity to, to make the show. And now they're only asking us to make eight a season. I think we all would happily make it 10 at least. But, but if they want eight, great. How can we make eight funny episodes? And we sit down and we, and we sit in a room and then suddenly – 
when you think, well, maybe it's done, we can't think of anything good, something pops up and we say, well, that could be interesting. And then the idea sort of leads us. And then sometimes we get in the editing room and we're like, well, damn it, why didn't I pick up on this or that? And like, I feel like this one doesn't work. And then sometimes we get in the editing room and we're pleasantly surprised when we thought, remember that little idea that just didn't seem like much? It's it's fantastic. So I don't know, you're you're chasing those intangibles all the time, but it usually becomes obvious and, and it leads us all to it. Now, how that relates to the audience, I'm not sure. Maybe a series of people picking the right ideas. I don't know. There is no right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's kind of a theme of this conversation is you just kind of have to trust you have to trust yourself that you, you have you to trust your instincts. You have to trust yourself and trust your instincts and, and just keep putting yourself out there and, and trying. And, you know, the case with this film was that I had to just keep trusting my gut, even when it got sort of like pandemic lost and confused. I was like, I don't, I don't know, but like, and then create a circle of trust with friends that you like their work so that you can, say i don't know someone might like i'm not gonna list the name but someone might be like a big action director or something and they might not be the right person to give advice on how to do an episode of it's always sunny in philadelphia but you might want to hear their advice anyway but you know keeping your circle of friends that you trust share in your taste and aesthetic and and that uh together collaborating with them you can make something that will resonate with somebody somewhere amazing well Charlie, thank you so much for talking to us. This was truly a pleasure. And again, Fool's Paradise, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a lovely throwback and uh, I recommend it. All right, yeah, well, hopefully people go to the movie theaters, May 12th. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. Thanks as always to our brilliant producer, Jamie Muffet, and to the whole team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage with code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. 100% free, you simply cannot beat that. For more exclusive content, find us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who should we interview next? Let us know. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another peek in the envelope.